please welcome Colonized Evangelicalism. Jesus is not coming. And if you think this, you need to get your perspective right. He's not coming with a little sweater. You know, he picks it up off of his cloak of heaven. Father, I must go now and celebrate what is about to take place January 20th with the one that stole the election. Let me put on my sweater. Can we have coffee? I don't think he's coming like Mr. Rogers in the land of make-believe. That's what they want us to do. Make-believe that it was legitimate. Make-believe that it really wasn't stolen. Make-believe that he had more votes. Jesus is not coming with this sweater. Well, Pastor Hank, how's he coming? He's coming like Rambo. How's that? You drew first blood. That's how he's coming. And he's going to deal with the thieves, the liars, the crooks, and those that have committed treason. You, 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 you give us a hard time for being white, being American, and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln. Okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black, it's our God. Jesus Christ has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and be, become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, good people. How y'all doing out there? Another week. Here we are, Profane Faith. In the place to be, it's your boy, Dan White Hodge, the host and curator of Profane Faith. Well, um, here we are. Wow. Uh, if you're in the uh, Midwest area, you know we're getting a lot of snow right now. If you're listening to this in real time, you know there is uh, quite the, uh, the snow out there. This was this was good. I was I was actually waiting for a good a good snowfall. We've been getting some smatterings and some uh, uh, just you know some you know real stuff that just make you know melts uh, you know melts away real quick. And yeah, this that not this stuff right here. You know, <laughs> this stuff right here. You know. In fact, in a lot of places it was coming up to my knees, man. I was like, golly, it's got a lot of drift on it, and so. Um, yeah, it's been snowing continuously for about, uh, 32 hours. It should be knocking off here in a little while, but nevertheless, here I am as a Midwesterner, right? Talking about the weather on a, on a podcast, no less. Um, but Hey, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. Um, hope y'all doing good out there. Um, you know, a lot of things going on as always. And, uh, in the news, I think this week, what has really, uh, stood out to me is uh you know stuff around spiritual and theological abuse 
Uh, got a old friend um, who was once a a uh, I was their youth pastor a long many many moons ago, and uh, they are in the process of getting a divorce, and uh, unfortunately, and you know just uh, you know mainly because you know the spouse had uh, cheated, and um, and you know when I when I think about it. And the, the amount of crap, particularly when you add in intersectionality to religion, uh, that women in particular um, get told uh, that men should be, you know, given another chance and that, you know, just let him get this out of his system, um, you know, crap like that. And, you know, when and it's one thing if you're a cheater, it's another thing if you don't. It's, it's another thing when you when you got the whole spiritual abuse thing going, like praying about it more and, and understanding, trying to understand God more and, you know, listen to God's voice, right? And I'm like, man, that is some, that is some shit, man. And I mean, as you heard at the beginning, right, there's the little recordings, the last few weeks I've been playing, you know, different recordings that I find, you know, across the internet in regards to just stupid ass pastors, right, that, you know, still just are all on uh, Trump's uh, D and uh, you know but there are still people you know involved in these you know in, in these churches and man I I don't know I, I struggle y'all I struggle with the the facet of church and y'all know this I've had these conversations a lot in regards to you know kind of the state of church it feels like oftentimes you know people will it's almost like they check their 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 critical thinking skills at the door um at church and and i'm not saying we should you know go up in there and hell raise but i'm like at the same time i'm still frustrated that you know here we are and 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 really i mean let me put it to you like this and really it it what is the purpose then of religion i get what it was for for thousands of years prior but now in the age of technology right in the age in the age of information um i you know and i understand religion's place in terms of where we're at seeking deity understanding being able to you know kind of have some kind of grounding for what happens next you know in regards to death and after this life um you know and 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 i i get that i want to wrestle with those things but i think what gets me though with with all of this is that you know, in all of this, you still have people who will hold that over other people and they will they will make sure that they are held to they are held to, the, you know, to hell and brimstone. Right. That's really what it comes down to is that a lot of people just don't want to, you know, burn in hell they don't want to go they don't want to you know uh they don't want to end up on the other side of that thing and stuff and so i don't know this is something that i, I think i've i've tried to pull out and and nuance a little bit in my own work and trying to better understand you know the the space and place of religion not so much spirituality not so much um you know uh, folks who are seeking a, you know a higher level I think what gets me about religion is that usually there's one person or two people in charge, right, um, that kind of have this knowledge and, and whatnot. And if pastors really functioned as pastors, um, you know, pastoring folks, uh, allowing them to wrestle with certain things, I think, you know, we'd be in we'd be in a different space. And I think, you know, again, going back to my friend, I think, 
you know, when when you have a, a spouse that cheats on you continuously, not just once or twice, like they were working through trying to work through all these little things and then come to find out this person is, you know, is continually lying and 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 the family that makes excuses for that person, right? You know, and so I don't know. I I don't and, and again, if you one thing is like, "Oh man, I'm caught. I I got to work on this," but it's like, you know, uh, you know, got to pray for me and you got to, you got to, you know, you gotta just got to, you know, be remember to, to, to keep God in, in, in your life. I mean, it's just like, dude, just, just stop, stop spiritual abuse. Yo, it, it, that's some real shit, man. And it's, uh, it's up there. It's up there with, you know, uh, emotional abuse. It's up there with physical abuse. Um, you know, it creates trauma. Uh, it creates trauma. Uh, my good friend and uh, co-author, we got a book coming out here, hopefully later this year on Marvel, the Marvel universe and, and religion. Uh, oddly enough, right, looking at uh, you know religion in the the MCU. And um, Jennifer Baldwin, Doctor Jennifer Baldwin is her name, and uh, you know she said something. I want to get her on the show, and I want to give her full credit, um, you know, for this. Uh, but she had she we were going back and forth texting, and. Um, you know, she said something to the effect that, you know, Christianity was a religion that was started in trauma, right? There's, and uh, there, it, you know, and, and it's been etched in trauma and rooted in trauma, and that so much of that has been carried over into real time. Like thinking thinking about a religion as a, as a person, right? As and, and looking at it from a therapeutic perspective, right? And, and right, thinking about how you know, people who have been traumatized, people who have been hurt, people who have been, people who have not done the work, right? We know this, that they'll just continue to um, hurt others. And uh, it feels like there's so much of that involved uh, within Christianity. And I think that's, that's something to look at. It's something to think about. And like I said, I want to get her on the show. I'm going to try to get her over here. I'm not even doing justice to what she said. And when she comes on, best believe I'm going to be asking her that uh, question. But the way she framed it and was saying about how Christianity has been, you know, rooted, has had trauma, and it's never really dealt with that, right? When you think about the amount of stuff and pain it's inflicted on other people, um, you know, and even just, you know, even how the religion got started. I mean, if you think about it again, going back to even Jesus, Jesus himself, you know, was not a Christian, right? And so all those things I think add up. And I think if we, you know, just stood back and we're just like, all right, let's look at this a little less um, dogmatically. That's the word I want to use. Right. Let's 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 uh, let's not look at this thing so dogmatically. Let's not look at this thing so rules based that we can't see the forest for the trees and we can begin to actually look and allow change and development. And again, maybe this is just, you know, pie in the sky. I'm sure there's some people out there listening saying, well, you know, Dan, this is what happens in my place. This is what happens in my church. And so, I, you know, you should come check out our church. This is what we do. Um, I also get too that, you know, until you hit a point where you're, you come up against the norm or the standard of any particular organization, you really don't know where it stands, right? It's like, you, if you haven't had your first fight in any kind of relationship, um, and I'm not talking about fist fight, I'm talking about genuine like argument, I disagree. Like if you've never had that, it's difficult to know where you stand. Um, it's difficult to know what folks will do when the, when the chips are down. 
Um, so these are some of the things that I think about, right? Um, you know, with that. Uh, and that's not to say that there aren't good places out there. That's not to say that the folks who say, hey, come check out my church aren't genuinely saying that. All I'm saying is, is that there is a multitude of spiritual uh, and religious abuse. Um, and it and it holds people back. It holds people back from doing what the hell they got to do, right? From moving on, from, you know, with dealing with their hurt, with dealing with a divorce, right? Dealing with and moving on with that, right? It's like the spiritual abuse has got to, because a lot of it just comes down back down to power, right? I mean, I know leaving my community was about power. It was about one person, one or two people holding the power, you know, and it's like you can go so far. And then once you cross that line, that's it. You got to be put back in place, um, you know, and I I thank my lucky stars. I thank Emily, my partner, to, who stuck with me uh, during that time to really push me to leave that community because I would have went back. I would have went back because if that's all, you know, if that's all you ever know and, and is 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 just that abuse, you, you go back to it. It's like the story Jesus talks about with the, with the demons that leave this house and the person cleans it all up well and the demon is out there roaming around saying, wait a minute, why the hell was I gonna leave? The, I got a house and now it's all cleaned up. And it, I'm coming back to this place, man. I'm coming back, shit. So I'm just saying, man, and that's, and that's for real, you know, and whew, I'm thankful that I left. And now I feel like I can stand on my own two feet, but until you get to that space, that's the, the that's a critical time for a lot of folks. Um, that's a critical time for, you know, for really anyone, right? Leaving an abusive and emotionally abusive, physically abusive relationship, sexually abusive relationship, right? All those things, um, you know, leaving, just the leaving part um, is a big thing. Uh, so I don't know. I encourage you to, to keep thinking critically. Um, I think all this fits with our guest today, uh, Dr. Kristen Dumais. Uh, she is a historian out at Calvin College. I'm um, sure by the title um, of this uh, podcast, you know, you already know what's happening. Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith in a fractured nation. Let me just say this. I love this conversation. I think uh, Dr. Dumais is has is 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 saying exactly what I've been trying to say for the last four or five years about why evangelicalism loves uh, Trump, uh, and more importantly, why you know I do not identify anymore as as an evangelical. Um, and so you you got to go read the book. I, it's a fascinating book. I downloaded it. It's a page turner. You did, and it reads quick, and it just. It surmises so much of the historical context, hyper-masculinity, right? It's one of the reasons why I wanted to play this clip, right? The, the idea that Jesus is Rambo, that Jesus is going to come down and somehow kick ass and take names, right? Um, that somehow that this religion, right, is rooted in hyper-masculinity. Again, going back to that trauma, right? Um, so... Excellent book, highly recommend it. Um, and I was very thankful uh, to get her on the show and just to have this conversation around this. Because again, this lines up with so much of what I've been talking about uh, on this show. Um, and in particular, just some of the stuff that I was working on in 2016 uh, when that fool got elected. Um, this is uh, this is this is a good one. Uh, she, uh, Dr. Dumais, uh, she teaches courses in the U.S. Uh, in U.S. women's history and U.S. social and cultural history. Um, she, like I said, she's out at Calvin College, where she's professor 
uh, of history and uh, history in German, I believe. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. I'm just I'm looking at her degrees. Her degrees are one. Her BA is in history in German. Uh, she's just a professor of. Uh, she's a hip, pro, professor of history out at Calvin College. Um, excellent uh, teacher. Uh, that was one of my first questions. She was like, how did you write a book like this and remain at Calvin <laughs> of all places? Uh, but the book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And we are still here, y'all. So uh, check this conversation out. Um, continue to ask good questions about theological, religious, and spiritual abuse. And let's keep pushing forward, y'all. All right, here we go. and everything that's that's this is awesome um well welcome to the show welcome to profane faith dr dume i we I appreciate you coming on oh thank you happy to be here um this so there's a lot this book right here i've been reading it uh is a damn page turner oh my <laughs> gosh this oh, i i there's so much that i have in this that i've read and i'm just like oh my gosh and granted i'm i'm in kindle so it, it turns the page you know i gotta it turns the page <laughs> You know, bit by bit, but I am blown away at the the depth and the um, just the scholarship in this. Definitely want to get into that, but I'm curious. Well, the, the question I ask everybody on the show when they first come up uh, is, uh, what's what's been happening from birth to now? What is what has gone on that has gotten you to this point and where you're at? Oh wow, birth to now. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> so I. Uh... I was born into a conservative Christian family in a small town in Iowa, a little conservative enclave. Uh, at the time, pretty much exclusively white. Uh, since that time, there's been some um, uh, Hispanic immigration to the area. Uh, but I grew up in, yes, deeply Christian home, went to Christian schools and uh uh, didn't really identify as an evangelical uh, because I was part of a kind of more distinct tradition, a Dutch ethnic uh, reformed tradition. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, I um, I grew up in that community uh, and really had a sense of, you know, that was the center of truth. And uh, actually ended up moving to Florida for a couple of years, lived in Tallahassee. That was my first experience attending a public school, which was amazing. Absolutely loved it. Hmm. Became an exchange student in Germany for a year. Uh, and that, I think, more than anything, both the combination of, of living in Florida, a very different cultural setting, and then even more so in Germany, kind of made me more um, curious about my own tradition, okay. more curious about America, American history, American religion, because I saw that things were so different in other places, connections between militarism and nationalism and uh, and religious identity. So mm. yeah, I ended up going off, um, went to Christian college in my, <clears throat> in my hometown, went off to graduate school and decided to address some of these questions of uh, American history, American religious history uh, professionally. And my first book was actually kind of a biographical exploration mm -hmm. of uh, Christian feminism, a history of Christian feminism. And then uh, in a roundabout way, I ended up uh, writing Jesus and John Wayne, which is, is my second book. Yes, this is that's that's what's up. I mean, and there's so much. I mean, okay, there's so much going on just that that's been happening over just the last week, at least at the time of yeah. recording this. Um, yeah. What was kind of the genesis for this book? And I'm curious, just like 
being at an institute like Calvin, how I get yeah. as I was reading this, I was like, how are you still at Calvin? I mean, I, I, I'm like, what is going on? So I don't know. Maybe, maybe we just start there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I just see this work. Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm um, uh, I, I'm a I think professor in good standing right now at uh, Calvin University, and you know Calvin's mission is to be agents of renewal okay. in this world and Christ's agents of renewal. So I like to think that this book is um, squarely within that mission. So uh, until I'm told otherwise, I'm assuming that that's the case. But the, the book actually started with uh, it, it was my students at Calvin more than 15 years ago who brought uh, to my attention this literature on uh, militant Christian masculinity. Mm. They introduced me to John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart. And yeah. right. So immediately I was intrigued. And as a scholar, as a historian, I, I I was very curious how this this teaching on, you know, what it meant to be a Christian man. It was a warrior masculinity and every man needed a battle to fight. Mm. Uh, this was this was back in 2005, 2006, in the oh, early yeah. years of the Iraq War. Yes. Right. And so I, I was looking at all the survey data coming out that white evangelicals were far and away more supportive of the Iraq war, of preemptive war in general, of torture. And, and so I started to ask, you know, I wonder if there's a connection between this militant Christian masculinity and the actual militancy that we see in terms of an aggressive foreign policy. And so that was the genesis of the book. I ended up setting it aside for a time. Uh, other things got in the way. And uh, also, I wasn't quite sure. Like what I was reading seemed really extreme to me. Um, but I knew these things were, these books were incredibly popular. And this is the time of Mark Driscoll. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, is this mainstream? Is this fringe? Uh, then fast forward to 2016, fall of 2016. I, I thought that that answer um, uh, had been given and I dusted off the old research. And that's when I really um, uh, decided to write Jesus and John Wayne. Wow. And so, yes. So going back to Eldridge and Wild at Heart, I that's funny that you bring that up because I, I remember when it came out, I was actually working as a youth pastor at that time uh, at a church. I, I won't put them on blast right now, but I was at this uh, it was a very large church. Actually, it's probably like, I don't know, eight, nine thousand members. And uh, at one point, Judge Lance Ito went there. I don't know if you remember the, the OJ trials. This was I was this was in Southern California. I'm a, I'm a Southern oh, wow. California guy. Um, so there was, there was all that. And I remember this, this book like took the whole church quote unquote by storm. And, uh, you know, they were doing all these men's things. And even then, uh, I was like, wait, what are we doing? Like, why are we doing this? And, you know, and then like, you know, like the, some of the pastors, the male pastors were showing up with like full on like armor and swords and carrying that crap around. And I was like, oh, hell no, nah, man. I'm a, a black man in America. It's like, that's a concealed weapon, man. I ain't going to be walking around no damn sword. So that got me yeah. to think more about that. How? So let me ask this. So how has that impacted just how students and just some of the teachings that you've been doing as a professor of history? I mean, I love that. Um, I taught African-American history for many years when I lived back in California. I taught at L.A. Mission College and uh, Cal State L.A. And uh, it's one of my favorite courses to teach. It was just, you know, from 1600 to the, to the present it was a two part class. And how have you like embedded some of that in, in just pedagogical styles? I'd be curious, like in, in the classroom and 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 secondly, how do how do students respond? 
Well, so what prompted the students to bring Eldridge's book to my attention was I had just lectured on Teddy Roosevelt in U.S. history. Okay. And since you've read the book, you know that I, I kind of opened Jesus and John Wayne with uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And I was I was um, giving this lesson on Roosevelt as a great example to my students as a way of thinking about gender, about mm. gender and history, how masculinity works, that it's not just uh, a kind of personal thing, but it's, it's connected to ideas of war and empire and American power and race. And, and so it was after that lecture that they said, yeah, you need to read this book because they could see that there were the same implications in Wild at Heart. And, and, and John Eldred actually, Eldridge opened his book with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt and, and went on to sketch this very militant conception of masculinity. So, you know, it was, it was really in the classroom space that, that, that this project emerged. Um, but I will say too, that, uh, I make the point in the book, this is predominantly a white Christian mm-hmm. masculinity, right? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. like you said, this is not something that most black Christian men are promoting. You know, a couple exceptions, but for the most sure. part, this is the historically and up to the present is a distinctively white Christian trope. Yes. Yes. I, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I was introduced to some, uh, one of my friends, good friend of mine, and, and, uh, he just kept bugging me about it and he wanted me to come to this men's meeting and they were doing, I forget what he was even called. I was, it, but, but it had had that undertone of this hyper masculinity that just completely turned me off. And so, uh, let me, well, let me ask this again. I got, I, I, I got all kind of questions. I was like taking notes and highlighting and, and stuff in the book. I was like, man, this, because I think you captured a nerve that I think a lot of people have been trying to figure out. I mean, I think there's some people like, I mean, the 2016 election was, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, was not a surprise to me. It's like that was the natural recourse of actions after eight years of a black man sitting in the presidency, right? But I know a lot of people were like, how did this happen? And why did this happen? What are some of the challenges then around this kind of masculinity that you've seen uh, and, and in some of the dangers and even now, right. That we, we're learning more every day about the, you know, the, the insurrection at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right about 2016, when we saw evangelicals coalescing behind Trump, and then when we saw, you know, the infamous 81% um, end up supporting Trump voting for him, uh, there were a lot of narratives that, you know, some form of how could evangelicals betray their values. And those headlines really annoyed me, I have to say, because knowing (laughs) this history, this is not a betrayal, right? This is the fulfillment of what we've seen for decades. This is a culmination. Mm. And and so that's really important too. Um, Now, I think part of this this question of betrayal comes from the fact that, you know, evangelical self-presentation isn't um, the whole story. And so evangelicals will uh, identify as, you know, we're Bible-believing Christians and we're family values evangelicals. And those things sound really lovely uh, for the most part (laughs) on the surface. right. But you scratch beneath the surface and uh, you start to see that, you know, there's this um, value system that has been promoted and sustained for generations. And at the center of that value system is, frankly, white patriarchy, white patriarchal power. And Mm. if you place 
uh, at the center. Um, and you see how that, and then, and then this militant conception of, you know, God made men to be aggressive protectors of faith, family, yeah. and nation. And if you keep that at the center of conservative white evangelicalism, it's 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 very closely closely linked to Christian nationalism and defending Christian America, then um, all of this falls into place. And and what you can see is and what I trace in this book is how you know th- these quote unquote Bible believing Christians had no trouble easily dismissing the words of Christ from the scriptures, you know, turn the other cheek, uh, love mm. your, your neighbor, mm-hmm. love your enemies, you know, the fruit of the spirit, all of these things, you know, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not what we need. That's not what real men need in this moment because the moment, wherever that moment was, whatever it was, was always a crisis moment that required an aggressive defense. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I love all that. I love all that. Um, so let, oh, so let me let me go let me go back even further. So like I'm a product of the late '70s and '80s, and you know having come through like you know the kind of the height of the Cold War and you know Reaganism, at least for in my community, it was at its worst. You know what I'm saying? Especially the rise of the crack era and all that. How do you see though, like kind of the '80s, and maybe you don't. Again, this is this is just me just asking a, a question on some of the work that I've done as well and looking at just kind of the shift in narratives about Christianity, right? I mean, it's like some of these hot button issues, uh, whether it be, you know, same sex marriage or uh, abortion, of course, is, is always a hot one. But how do you see like the Reagan era really shaping that focus on the family? I mean, how is some of those things, have they contributed? Have they not? Uh, what, what, how would you connect some of that? Yeah, I mean, even before the 80s, the 60s and 70s, the second half of the 60s and the 70s are really critical um, Mm. for the conservative white evangelical political mobilization. That's where we really see the rise of the religious right that culminates in uh, the 1980s, uh, the Reagan years. Uh, but the roots of that go back to the 60s. And the 60s are this really disruptive time, not just for America, but for white evangelicals. Uh, because it was just uh, like the last couple decades that they kind of reemerged, reasserted themselves on the national stage through Billy Graham, through the National Association of Evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And they did so by promoting anti-communism, you know, defending America, defending Christian America, and gender traditionalism was really important to them. So very clear differences that God ordained between men and women, masculinity, femininity, like this assertive power um, and protector versus, um, you know, passive vulnerability. Uh, and the, the thing is, though, back in the 40s and 50s, that wasn't super countercultural. Like everybody was anti-communist and yeah. uh, pro-America during the Second World War and so on. In the 1960s, that's when we see the fracture. And that's when we see a lot of Americans start to question American goodness and American greatness. You have the civil rights movement. You have the feminist movement that's uh, challenging traditional gender roles. And uh, you also have the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement. And a lot of Americans start to say, you know, maybe American militarism isn't all it's cracked up to be. Uh, Maybe gender traditionalism isn't where it's at. But that's when evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, just double down on those values. So they become evangelical distinctives. And they really, it's those issues that mobilize conservative white evangelicals um, to this partisan political engagement, and they mm. do so 
feeling that they are marginalized, knowing that they don't no longer represent kind of the, the the mainstream, or at least it's it's a contested mainstream. And so they see themselves as a faithful remnant, and it is up to them to preserve truth and American greatness. And and so that's really this this critical moment in that and we see the fruit of that in the election of Ronald Reagan and the fruit of that in you know throughout the 80s. And yes, Dobson, James Dobson is very much at the center of things. Well, and I like the way you. Um, this is. I mean, this connects a lot, at least for me, as you're as I'm hearing you talk about. You know, with your, you know, chapter five, where you're using, you know, slaves uh, and soldiers. I mean, even the the beginning of the chapter where you say, you know, as evangelicals began to mobilize as a partisan political force, they did so by rallying to defend family values, which <laughs> I've always yeah. found interesting, right? Because it's like, well, but which family values first of all right like you know what are the what are the rules we're following here mm-hmm. um and then ultimately this this kind of uh this image right that you're talking about of you know the protector male um which is interesting because i will say that in in particularly you know black and latinx communities there is still a sense in in particularly in working class in communities and within those uh, those aerial spaces of a sense that the man is still the provider um, and that he should somehow, you know, be the head of the household, right? Um, yeah. It's interesting because even my mom, who was like part of the Black Panther Party back in the in the in the '60s, and like um, did all this like feminist stuff and everything, at the end of the day, she still wanted a man to quote unquote take care of her, right? And mm-hmm. I always found that dichotomy just, you know, odd. <laughs> <laughs> no yeah. one my mom's background you know what i'm saying yeah yeah and you know it's not that unusual and but what is i think more distinctive or in in terms of the white evangelical patriarchy is how closely it is tied to christian nationalism and mm-hmm. therefore to american militarism right that's the you know yes. you can take in one of those but it's it's really the the combination of these all and that's the continuity that we can see from really the early cold war era up to the present and so each of those strands gives shape to the others how do you think in times and apocalyptic, I know you talk about Tim LaHaye, you know, and the left behind books, but how do you think apocalyptic and eschaton themes have play, also played a role uh, into this? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that they do is uh, you know, just just up the stakes of everything. And the stakes are always incredibly high, right? There, It's always the fate of Christianity is at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and Christianity, again, is always linked to the United States uh, and to Christian America. And uh, th- this apocalyptic literature ends up usually kind of glorifying the bloody battles that will be fought, the slaying of the enemies that is part of, of you know, the end of the world. And so the book of Revelation is very popular in, uh, in, in as much as they cite the Bible, which is not as much as you might think, these books on kind of militant Christian masculinity. Yeah. Um, their favorite place to go is, is usually the book of Revelation because you've got lots of nice imagery of swords and horses and and bloody battles and and that's kind of their favorite place much better than you know the Jesus of the gospels part um so so i think that that apocalyptic thinking just plays into the it, it feels the urgency mm-hmm. and the sense of you know this this battle 
that we are participating in and that we will be participating in and that Christ in Revelation is the Christ who wields the bloody sword. Yes. I, I think I love Cornell West's, you know, classic saying that, you know, we live in the United States of amnesia uh, <laughs> because, right, we forget so much and there's so much lost um, to history. I think that um, I, I'd be curious to know, how do, you, how do you think the role then of televangelism, especially the rise and kind of thriving of it? I remember having an uncle who was a pastor, a Baptist pastor, this was out in Texas, um, and you know, great guy, loved him, loved going over to his house, but woo, he loved him and, and, you know, and my aunt loved Jim and Tammy Faye Baker just to the death. I mean, they were just like sold hardcore, sending them money the whole nine. And how do you think some of that stuff played also a role into some of these kind of heteronormative perspectives and also just kind of the narrative of white evangelicalism or just, you know, this nationalism? Yeah, oh, hugely important. I don't think it can be overstated. The this entire media world uh, that has existed again for generations mm -hmm. and has just uh, formed the faith of millions of Americans. And we're talking televangelism. We're yeah. talking Christian radio, Christian yeah. talk radio, right? All of this and and the power of it is that it is largely invisible to anybody outside of that media, media bubble. Yes, like you know, we know there's televangelists, <laughs> but didn't they kind of disappear after the '80s with all those scandals? But if you don't go you know high enough on uh, up the channels you know realize that they're still there and that there are many people who tune in for hours and hours every week um and, and same thing with talk radio christian talk radio or you know quote unquote secular talk radio that really reinforces these these same themes and so i think it's um it's just kind of hiding in plain sight and it's incredibly formative so that i mean the whole book jesus and john wayne is really trying to center this uh, Christian consumer culture mm. to understand that American Christians and white evangelicals in particular are deeply shaped by this kind of Christian industrial complex, by Christian radio, by the Christian publishing world. And we need to pay much yeah. more careful attention to what values are being promoted and which voices and values are being intentionally excluded from that marketplace. Because when it comes down to it, this is what a lot of Christian pastors have been finding out these past four years. Mm -hmm. They actually aren't the leaders of the evangelical movement. They thought they were. Mm -hmm. uh, even, you know, national spokespeople, SPC folks, uh, I'm thinking Russell Moore here, right? Yeah, they yeah. Realize the limits of their leadership. Local pastors do because the people in the pews have been deeply shaped, again, for decades by these other values. And, and so it's really, the book is an attempt to just reconceptualize evangelical leadership and really reconceptualize what it is to be an evangelical. That That's interesting. I mean, I, I love that. And, and I know for me, it, it, you know, I left, I feel like I left evangelical. Well, I don't feel like I know I left evangelicalism probably about a decade or so ago. And you know, this 2016 election, I think, really solidified that for me. I think the biggest thing out of the 2016 election is I felt like myself, along with several other folks who who have been doing kind of the 
the work of diversity and intercultural communication training, right? And all these things just felt like, right? Because for so long, we just, we told ourselves, well, if we just do it this way and we build a bridge and we get one person, I know for me, when I saw those numbers come back and even in the, the, this, you know, last year's election to still see the numbers still remain, you know, relatively high, you know, with, with uh -huh. white evangelicals voting, still, you know, still voting for Trump, my mother-in-law being, being one of them, um, it's I'm it's it, it that that for me was really just solidified that what do you think and maybe I'm asking this prematurely but what do you think is the future of, of evangelicalism I hear people saying oh we need to put it back together you know you got folks like Lisa Sharon Harper on one side saying you know we can repair this and 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 try to work through it but what what do you see is is the damage too done I mean especially with social media right we talk about media but like Rush Limbaugh and just kind of that kind of era of 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 impact with a constant barrage of right you know it's like we, we i feel like we don't even have a a center for truth anymore like we can't even agree on like what is a fact i don't know if that even yeah. makes sense that that makes oh, yeah. <laughs> no that's exactly right a lot of people even you know people in the same churches are living in different media realities so that you know their sense of reality is is shaped by the media they consume and uh, so there, there are these deep divisions. I think that social media plays a role now, not just in perpetuating these differences, mm -hmm. but also simply in revealing them. Because I think these differences have existed for a long time, even within white evangelical churches and families. But these differences could more easily be papered over, you know, because we'd you know, use the same language of, you know, love your neighbor of course of course right right and uh you know but but what do we actually mean by that and honoring god and these sorts of things and so is what what social media has done is demonstrate that uh you love your neighbor does not look like welcoming the stranger uh you know opening the country to refugees to you know for many people mm -hmm. uh racial differences you know responses to the black lives matter movement like are suddenly just in full on full display on you know your mother-in-law's a facebook page or like the elder in your church and so i think that right now um the divisions within white evangelicalism are um are really profound. I'm not sure where we go from here. Uh, at this point, the feelings are so raw and emotions are so high that I'm hearing yeah. from a lot of people who say, this can't be patched back together. I'm hearing from a lot of white Christian leaders asking precisely this question, you know, in light of Jesus and John Wayne and the story you tell, what's your advice? How do we put this together? And to them, usually my, my first response is, yeah, why do we have to? Um, <laughs> right. And why do you have to be the ones to do it, <laughs> right? Because I think that within white evangelicalism, there is a, a sense, uh, has long been a sense that, again, they were the faithful remnant. They were the most yeah. orthodox of American Christians. The fate of American Christianity, the fate of America, you know, they, they still aren't letting that go, that they, that they hold that in their hands. And therefore, they need to they need to fix this. Now, I'm all for fixing this, but I'm also for decentering white evangelicalism in you know in their own minds. Uh, that you know maybe just maybe if if it is as corrupt as you think it is right now, maybe the the the, the first thing to do is to find where it isn't, <laughs> find where it's been flourishing, 
And that might not be white Christianity. It might not be white evangelicalism, but maybe the first thing you need to do is, is listen and learn um, before very quickly trying to rebuild, reform, redeem. Uh, you know, maybe that's not their job. Um, you know, that said, I, if, if people feel called to, to rebuild, reform, uh, you know, more power to them. But I think that it ne needs to come after a pretty thorough deconstruction. And I'm not sure that we're there yet. In fact, yeah. I know that we yeah, no, I I would agree, Doc. I think you know, and that and I think those are some of the conversations, right? That, I mean, I also you know teach at a private Christian institution, and so, um, it it I feel like even with this last week, right? It's like I saw a meme <laughs> that said, um, you know, all Christian, all private Christian universities trying to choose between you know, keeping their white donor base happy and, you know, trying to put some statement out. And I feel like that, at least for, I'll speak for our university, I think that that was definitely the case. And like, there's still this sense of like, oh, well, let's just come together and they'll throw out some uh, proof texted scripture out there. And, uh, you know, the next thing you know, it's like they want people to feel like, you know, these fuzzy feelings. Meanwhile, it's like, well, <laughs> we still got some, we still got some problems here. Like, and, and so... <laughs> Um, I think along with that, and and I come out of the nonprofit world, I still have a lot of connections and ties with that. How do you think this has affected, particularly donor base? I was with Young Life for many years. I was an area director and, you know, uh, did, you know, bought into that whole thing, especially back in the 90s, right? Um, mm -hmm. When a lot of this stuff, you know, Promise Keepers was, was still banging and people wanted to hug it out and everything. But I'm curious, like, what? how do you think this has affected areas like that um and particularly let me ask you this as a historian um the second the, the follow-up then would be that you know when you got there's since to be this sense of uh, we're losing a generation now uh -huh. now granted as a historian i'm sure you know i mean we i was hearing that back in 1992. Yes. <laughs> you know we're saying? always losing the, the younger generation. <laughs> always. Back in the 40s, they were losing the younger generation. Yes. That was Billy Graham's job to go go evangelize the young kids. Yeah. Yes, those leather jackets and slick hair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're 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 right. This is um these dynamics within the nonprofit sector, uh Christian nonprofits. Uh, the pressures are enormous, and I know because because I'm talking with many leaders in these in these organizations, and some of them uh, find ways to invite me to speak to their leaders. Mm -hmm. um, but it always comes with you know a series of kind of caveats of okay, here's what you have to understand, here's what you know. But they're bringing me in to bring this very disruptive message, even as they feel incredibly constrained by how far they can go in addressing racial injustice, in addressing, uh, you know, the current political moment. Uh, so many people on the inside are personally deeply convicted, mm -hmm. but that doesn't always translate to institutional courage. In fact, it rarely does. Um, and I get it. I mean, you run an institution, you, um, you know, I, I'm very glad that I'm a professor with academic freedom and I'm yeah. not the president of Calvin University right, right now. Right, right, right. I much prefer my job. But, um, you know, so, so these leaders are trying to balance uh, what they perceive as, uh, you know, the good that they can do by keeping their institution afloat against speaking truth 
and um, perhaps speaking prophetically into the moment. And many come to the conclusion that, you know, just not our job to address these issues. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing um, and we're going to do faithful work. Um, but I think it's becoming less and less tenable to kind of hold that intention, given the, 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 the point that the country has come to, given where we have been, um, you know, really since this summer um, in terms of, of addressing racial justice, white supremacy, and now the kind of undermining of our democratic institutions and norms. I mean, at this point, it is becoming, I think, more and more awkward for, for Christian institutions to stay quiet. But the pressures are 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 great. And, and right now, you know, with COVID and with the kind of collapse of higher education generally, yeah. the financial pressures are already intense. And I can see, I mean, they're looking at their spreadsheets and they know if I, if we do this, if we do that, you know, uh, we could lose these donors. And um Christian magazines, if we say this or that, we're going to lose these subscribers. Um, churches, ministers, right? Oh, my goodness. They know who's going to stop giving and who's going to leave or who's going to kick them out if they cross certain lines. And this is just repeated just day to day across mm-hmm. white evangelicalism. So I don't know. My 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 advice is just to speak your truth. And if there's enough people speaking their truth, then we're going to see, yes, many things will collapse, but I think fresh things are going to start up in, in much healthier spaces. I like that. And I guess that's what I've tried to, to urge a lot of my compatriots who are, you know, working for justice, working for, you know, equality and equity in, in certain areas is to like, I don't know. Let's let's look at, you know, what something new may look like. Um, I like that. That's this is good. So and, and along with that, I and let me ask you this. And, and I again, I'm I, I'm loving this conversation. How do you think the role of race and ethnicity has 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 played a part, um, you know, just in, in particularly shaping with where we're at right now? Oh, a huge, I know that's yeah. I know that's big. Yeah, yeah, and it's and yeah, it's 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 tricky to articulate. You know, I, I was really pleased to have three hundred pages in the book to spell it out, kind of uh, gradually and over time. Because the thing about white evangelicals is that they actually rarely talk about race, uh, and certainly very little about their own racial identity. You know, it, it, looking at, at at themselves, not just as Christians, not just as evangelicals, but as white evangelicals. In fact, you know, white evangelicals in the subtitle of my book, and I've seen a number of people complain that that, that language is quote unquote triggering. Mm. Uh, that, that I might be racist against white evangelicals simply because I am naming, uh, you know, a, a, a demographic category. And it's not just a demographic category, it's a historical uh, community. Right, that uh, although there, you know, are certainly uh, some some African Americans who identify as evangelical, uh, far fewer than you might imagine, and you know, many uh, Black Protestants who would um, match up with many of the theological doctrinal beliefs of evangelicals, explicitly refuse to identify as evangelicals because they know that that label is not just kind of a theological rubric that you check off, but it is a religious identity. It is a historical community and it has been largely um, uh, a, a, a white historical community. So um, so this is where in the book, I, I try to show how 
uh, I try to make that whiteness visible. I try to show how in terms of, you know, family values politics, in terms of values like the government should not interfere with a parent's authority over their children, how that rhetoric emerged during the civil rights era mm. when white Christians wanted to fight back against the federal government who was interfering with their children in that they were desegregating schools, right? Yeah. When white evangelicals will talk about these values, many do so completely oblivious to the fact that, you know, values like, um, you know, parental authority, values like, here's a big one, law and order politics are, yeah. you know, in their conception are deeply racialized values. And yet, so is Christian America, the Christian nationalism. You know, the idea that America was founded as a Christian nation and everything was going great until, I don't know, sometime around usually the 1960s is what they point to. Right. right. Absolutely no sense for a black American, like none. And and yet, you know, these are just these values that are are held and embraced and assumed to be racially neutral and just plain old Christian. And so what I try to do is show how e these deeply held values, which appear to be neutral, racially neutral to those who hold them deeply are in fact deeply racialized. Christian nationalism, law and order politics, you know, authority of the family, so it is really a white patriarchy we're talking about. And I think once we make that visible, then some of the conflicts makes a lot, a lot more sense in recent years. Yeah. How can it be that evangelicals who claim to not be racist, who really don't think they are, who can who can name, you know, a, a person with dark skin that they consider a good friend, how does it they can do all that and still hold uh, the political views and the social views uh, that they that they hold? And and so I think that this history is 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 you know what I've really tried to do is make race visible, including and especially whiteness. Yes, I want and and I think that's one reason one of the reasons I asked that question because I feel like. That was done really well uh, in this book. And you, like you said, you had 300 pages to, to get it out, which is why I'm going to definitely encourage all of my listeners, they need to get out and read this book because I think, um, I love your quote. This is on page, this is, uh, I'm not even sure what page. Again, I'm in Kindle, folks. I, yeah. I think this is page 233. Uh, it's chapter 14. It says, for some, racial prejudice shaped their political leanings. I love that, right? Because this is something that I felt even back way back in the day, you know, when I was in Young Life, when, you know, when white donors would say, Dan, you know, I'm and this was at the, at the boom of of uh, the dot com era. And you felt like everybody was just trying to make money. Right. And, you know, but people would say, hey, I can write you a check for 50 grand just as long as you keep these kids out of my neighborhood. Right. And also like, the, you know, these these political leanings. Right. Or, you know, keep them keep them from dating my daughter. Right, Dan. And, um, you know, it, and then you want to say, but even for those who did not hold explicit racist convictions this is what got me their faith remain intertwined with their whiteness Woo, doc taking us to church up and now it's just plain old history <laughs> Get, share a little bit about that and feel free i mean i'm 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 curious just like how um particularly after the end of the civil war and you know it, it, how did how, you know the pirates moving then you got you know the zuza street revival i mean what how do some of those major things you know affect whiteness and particularly you know christianity um I, and you've covered some of this already but I, i'm just i'm curious when you say it's just history I'm, i can you just unpack that a little bit 
<laughs> no, it's funny you ask because I, I just finished teaching a, a class this morning and uh, it's it's a January intensive. So we meet three hours a day every Oof. day. Yes. And it's it's a class on uh, American Christianity in black and white. And uh, we just read uh, Jamar Tisby today and his The Color of Compromise. And we're mm. looking at Aziza Street. We're looking at... Uh, you know, the fundamentalist conflict and looking at how, you know, the fundamentalist conflict is so interesting because, you know, as kind of um, precursors to uh, modern evangelicals um, in the 1920s or in the 19 teens, uh, you know, conservative Protestants came together and really wanted to fight against the modernists and to articulate the real um, fundamentals of the faith, you know, biblical inerrancy and the virgin birth and, and so on. Yeah. And so they, pull these truths together in this set of, of fundamentals. And they send this, you know, these books to uh, all sorts of Christian preachers, but they don't bother to send them to any black preachers, any black churches, right? So their, their idea of Christian orthodoxy was already uh, subtly or not so subtly limited to white Christians. Um, And, and you can just see that really throughout, um, throughout the the 20th century that um, by and large, you know, these are very separate religious traditions, uh, you know, black Protestantism, white evangelicalism, uh, with a few points of intersection, you know, you'll have some um, black quote unquote evangelicals and people who are going between who are working for racial, racial justice or racial reconciliation, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, largely, largely distinct traditions. Um, and for black Christians, they always know that they are black Christians, right? It's hard to avoid. <laughs> um, but white Christians have the power, or I guess privilege is the word that we use now, um, to not have to be aware of their race. They see themselves as the default. You know, we're just mm-hmm. Christians. Mm-hmm. And, and and again, just being utterly blind to the ways in which a right, white racial identity has shaped their seemingly neutral faith, seemingly truest of all faiths, right? Because that's this kind of, you know, self-identity. And um, and so that's that's very powerful. And, and then, by the way, just identifying whiteness, the ways in which whiteness or white identity has shaped belief doesn't always mean it's a terrible, terrible thing, right? I mean, there's, we, we usually talk about it in a sense to, to bring out, you know, uh, racial injustice and so on. But it, it's just a, it's, it's just a historical formation. Like we are all formed by our communities. We are all formed by our histories, the histories that we know and the histories that we don't know. And, um, and, and so I think that for, for many white evangelicals, I have to say I've been shocked by the reception of this book, which is hmm. rather hard in some ways, um, in um, in white evangelical communities, I have been absolutely blown away that for many it is this book of kind of self revelation, where they understand their own journeys really for the first time because they've never really had it explained to them. They've always just taken so much for granted. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, and that's I think that's. Right. I mean, when people say, I, you know, I have no idea or I, you know, it's like, I, you know, where, where do I learn about them? It's like, well, there, there is a plethora of material right out there. Um, and add this book, you know, this amazing book to the to the canon um, of that. It, you know, it, it adds a whole nother layer um, onto that. Um, so, I mean, 
Oh my gosh, this is great. How do you think the uh, what, what what were your thoughts on the 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 attacks on the uh, on the Capitol? Now that we're just yeah. that they were, or I guess we're officially a week out of it now, or we a little over a week. Oh yeah, it's just all been a blur. So, uh, shocking as they were to all of us, but but honestly, not surprising. And you know, for me especially because I, I have been immersed in this literature of militancy. And I've seen how this has just um, accrued over the decades. This this militancy, this rhetoric of uh, you know God is warrior, and men are made in His image, and every man needs a battle to fight. And uh, I mean, you might say, "Oh, come on, that's just uh, uh, metaphorical." But we know it's not. Again, we we know that in terms of foreign policy, we can see white evangelical militancy. We can we can see what that looks like in ter- mm-hmm. terms of embracing the death penalty. In terms of you know all sorts of political issues. Um, in terms of you know the Black Lives Matter and and where sympathies lie, uh, and so we can see that these ideas do have consequences. And uh, so, so the real question that I have is, um, where will white evangelicals, the average ordinary, you know, small town suburban megachurch, you name it, white evangelical, where will they draw the line? Where will their sympathies ultimately lie? And I have been over the past week watching extremely closely, and I, I don't have a clear sense yet because the um, dominant response is silence that I'm seeing mm. in many circles. And I get it; it's a partisan, it's a you know a, a heightened partisan moment, and uh, sometimes the best thing is to keep quiet. However. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there are times that it that it might be appropriate to speak out. And what I have seen is, you know, uh, hey, it was Antifa. That's kind of, you know, that was the first few days. That's kind of faded. <laughs> A lot of, well, yeah, Black Lives Matter did the same thing, and they were worse. Um, I I have seen strong renunciations of the violence from people who had already been. Uh, you know, kind of prominent resistors to this, um, to to the Trumpian politics and to white evangelical complicity in that. I have not seen in um, in my observations uh, people who were supporters uh, who have now actively renounced that, mm-hmm. and so that's what I really looking for. And so I don't have a clear sense of what we might be looking at if things uh, get ugly again in this next week with the protests on Sunday and the inauguration planned. Right, right, right. Now, exactly. And I, I, you know, I keep seeing these headlines where it says, it's like, oh, they plan to go in and, you know, and, and kidnap, you know, senators and then like assassinate them. And I'm like, that's, I, I'm like, this is, this is, this is, at least for me, is not news. I, um, I don't anymore. I've been kicked out. I think I've been found out. But for about two years, from about 2014 to 2016, I, I started taking notice just of a lot of the rhetoric. I mean, as a communication scholar, I'm always interested in just how speech and, you know, really how the superior warfare hypothesis, you know, comes into play, uh, you know, and how people believe what they're saying and then they act it out and everything. And so I went in kind of undercover. I was, I was Jake. Uh, you know, with my my avatar was an uh, was an American flag and 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 an eagle, um, and some of these forums and everything, and so, you know, going through and just kind of listening to some of the speech, and some of these forums were as simple as barbecue forums. I'm an avid barbecuer. I used to do competition barbecue and like years ago and whatnot. 
But one of the things that stuck out to me, I was just in it for the food, like, you know, thing. But it, it again, the, this patriotism, this nationalism, uh, this strong, keen awareness back to Christianity uh, in particular. And, of course, the stuff was heightened, of course, after, you know, 9-11. Um, but, I, you know, for me, it wasn't, you know, so much news because so much of this 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 talk was about we're going to go in and we're going to kill, you know, and, and, and mainly men. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. spattering of, of women here and there, but yeah. um, mainly men, mainly white males. Um, I guess I, I guess my, my question then for you would be, how have, how do you think, I mean, you know, when you have a generation of folks who, you know, who were born, you know, in this era, I'd say, you know, generation, like particularly those born after the year 2000, I mean, how do you think, you know, the next worldview of, 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 of young, uh, young men in particular, young Christian males in particular, how do you, how do you think that's being affected right now? And, when, and, and again, just what are your thoughts on that? Again, I'm not asking for solutions. This is not, a, oh, you know, do these five things and then you'll be all right. You know, I don't want you to Tony Robbins it or anything like that, but uh, <laughs> I'd be curious your thoughts and just the impact of this on somebody who's 14, 15 and looking at all of this yeah. right now. Yeah. I mean, first I want to affirm that, you know, so I, I wasn't in those chat spaces where you were, but, you know, having immersed myself in this research, you know, even 15 years ago when I first encountered it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this rhetoric, I was deeply, deeply disturbed. And one of the reasons I set the book aside is I thought, you know, honestly, is do I want to spend the years I know this book will require immersed in this stuff? It was disgusting to me. It was misogynistic. It was militant, militaristic, and it was dangerous. Yeah. And, um, and, and and here's a confession. You know, part of my thinking was um, related to this the, the question of how fringe, how mainstream. And I thought, you know, as a person of faith, is it responsible and appropriate for me to be shining this bright light on the darkest underbelly of American Christianity if it's somehow you know more fringe than 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 what it seems? And that was one of my motivations for setting the project aside. And and I say confession mm. because that's exactly what has gotten us to where we are now. Too many of us, I think, were seeing the signs and um, and not really following where they led, um, not wanting to harm the witness of the church or wanting to think the best of people or just not being able to believe what we're seeing in front of us. And when I picked the research back up, it just continued in that vein where I, I thought, this is bad. This is really bad stuff. And this is far more pervasive than I realized when I started the project. So by the time I came to the end of the book, it was heavy. Um, I was incredibly discouraged. And in fact, it was only at my editor's persistent prodding that I added the last sentence of the book, which gives a little tiny glimmer of hope that, you know, maybe we can undo this, maybe, but good luck with that. Um, Because it's just so deeply embedded. That's the conclusion I had to come to, Um, which is why I'm I'm not super hopeful right now, but history is so hard. Um, You never know what's, you know, to foretell, you never know what's around the corner. Uh, In terms of young people today, I, um, at my university, I, um, that's kind of my window onto young, you know, the, the rising generation of white evangelicals, white Christians. It's not an exclusively white school, um, but it is predominantly white. And what I see is, um, Many of these students, because it's a private institution and it doesn't come cheap, many of these students um, do come from places of privilege, um, whether they're Americans or international students. 
and I actually see not a ton of alarm, to be honest. Mm. I, I see it's those of us who are in our 30s and 40s and, you know, it's some who are older who are like, I, I had to tell my students this this term, like I, like, I just need you guys to know, like, you're young. Like, this is what they've known really since they've kind of come of age, right? Mm. These, these guys are young. Um, like, but this is not normal. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> this is a longer view of American history. Like, this is kind of crisis moment here. I just tell them, like, just pay attention. Watch the news. Like, you're living through this moment, but it's not normal. Um, and so so the students I encounter, which doesn't mean they're, they're you know, not deep-thinking people, but they, I think they're caught up in, well, what's the next assignment for my next class? And they're kind of isolated um, mm. in their own little little bubbles. Um, but then I'll also say that, um, uh, yeah, in, in terms of, uh, where students are at the, it, it, it was the evangelical subculture, the power of the evangelical subculture over generations that really, you know, crystallized these values and united evangelicals in this identity. And I think that the power of that subculture is waning. And I think it has been in the past several years mm-hmm. because of, uh, you know, the shift to social media. Uh, now, whether when I was growing up in the 1980s and 1990s, it was very possible to be almost completely immersed in uh, the evangelical subculture. I only listen to Christian contemporary music, right? Only listen yeah. to Christian radio. Yeah. I, um, the one bookstore in my town was a Christian bookstore. That's where I bought books. Um, right. Yeah. That's not the, that's not the case anymore. Um, my students, no matter how conservative their background, they're on TikTok, right? They, they're on social media. They are immersed in a, a you know, everybody has Netflix, everybody. Uh, so, so it's just, it's not the same, uh, it no longer wields the same power. And I think that this media bubble and the um, this consumer culture has been so formative that now that that is eroding slash transitioning, uh, I see that it has a much looser hold on the uh, upcoming generation, on the younger generation today. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and as you were talking, I was thinking, like, how do you think then some of the demographic shifts has also shaped some of this kind of meta narrative, because I would agree. I think there are changes. I know my daughter who's 14, right. Is looking at a lot of this and being like, Oh dude, like really this? No, no. Like she's, you know, and you're right. She's on TikTok, and she's like, I don't know. They have these, like, uh, uh, the, the different folks on TikTok who, you know, post different memes of people losing their stuff for wearing masks and whatever. And one video was a, a woman losing her stuff at Trader Joe's talking about how, Jesus was with her and like she was praying the power of Jesus to curse Trader Joe's and everything. My daughter's like, dude, this is just like BS. Like, so along with that, I mean, I think I'd be curious. And I know our time is nine. I feel like, man, this time is just it felt it's felt like six minutes, uh, at least on this end. Um, I, I, how do you think like some of the demographic shifts have also kind of fueled some of this fear. I know I've, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've heard Ann Coulter talk about that and how like 2025 is going to be the year of the minority and they're going to have their, they are going to have the country, whoever this kind of amalgamous they are, uh, you know, from places, spaces like Rush Limbaugh and, uh, and whatnot. But I'd be curious, like what, you know, as you've done the research and done this work, like, you know, what, yeah, how how has some of that stuff changed? And the I think the the kind of inevitability that you know in ten years we'll have a generation you know a different generation in place uh, in Congress. Hopefully, hopefully in ten fifteen years. 
Yeah, um, no, that, that rhetoric of demographic decline, uh, you know, the end of white Christian America, as Robert Jones puts it, uh, has has really been um, a kind of motivating factor for many white evangelical leaders uh, over the past decade, right? And so this, this uh, more than a decade now, now, which conveniently overlaps with the presidency of Barack Obama, right? It was kind of the sign that the, the times they are changing. And with the election of Barack Obama in 2008, we also saw a slight defection of young white evangelicals crossing over from the Republican Party to vote for Barack Obama. Hmm. So that fact and looking at that demographic decline really did kind of um, uh, heighten the urgency, the panic in within the old guard of the religious right within people like you know James Dobson and then not quite so old Wayne Grudem and others and you can I mean they're they're very explicit about it they need to uh they need to kind of recapture their own young people and they need to you know like uh get them back on their side so that demographic fear is very real um and it was a motivating factor and it did um uh, lead us to where we are now. That said, among young white evangelical, um, uh, you know, teens, college students, uh, you, you've got some interesting demographic factors there as well in terms of partisanship and uh, in terms of values that um, they tend to be much more open on um, than some of their elders uh, or more progressive on issues of immigration and also on LGBTQ rights. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you see this, uh, this difference. Um, that said, you know, I'm always watching these, uh, this social science uh, data that as it comes in. And I also know that, you know, people have been foretelling kind of the end of evangelicalism for decades now, whenever they look at, you know, young people surveys and, and they say, ah, you know, it, the end is nigh, but then these young evangelicals grow up to be old, older evangelicals and they don't always stay on that same trajectory. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and that's, uh, Yes, and and that's what I always find interesting in, in looking at you know particularly you know youth studies and and again having and I I particularly lean toward just because you know that's been my background of course again as a youth pastor youth worker that's kind of you know, I've heard that was been the drum that I've heard forever and it, you know and it even sounds like you know there's there's more stuff now I saw another campaign that said oh we're after the 1.3 million youth leaving the church every year and I'm like oh Lord but what what y'all fools bringing them to. Um, how do you see? Well, I got a nerdy question for you, um, and I'm just curious, just because I've read a lot of his work. How did how did George Marsden and and some of his work, you know, influence, uh, you know, your work, or maybe maybe he didn't, and just in some of the stuff that you know he's written on. Oh yeah, that's a great question. So George Marsden uh, was my advisor in graduate school. Get the hell out of here! Are you yeah, serious? Yeah. And he's still a very good friend. So uh, we go to the same church. Awesome. Actually, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So very close relationship there. I mean, he's the person who taught me, you know, U.S. evangelical history when I got to graduate oh, school. Look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I will say that, you know, we have um, differed some in our interpretations of evangelical history. I think that um, although he read this book um, pre-publication and gave me, you know, lots of comments and uh, I won't speak for him, but I think he was a little skeptical going into it, and I think he was a little less skeptical by the time he came to the end of the book. So I'll, <laughs> that's, that's as much as I can say, and I'll let him speak any you know further into that if he would like at any point. But um, 
I, um, I, I think a, a, a difference would, I mean, first of all, he's just a, an amazing historian, careful, careful historian mm -hmm. and, you know, judicious in his scholarship. And then he is also the nicest person imaginable. If you haven't met him, I just want to put that out there. The kindest um, mentor um, that you could possibly have. Um, in terms of interpretive differences, I think that, um, you know, he, he, his training is as an intellectual and religious historian. Mm. And so, um, and then he has been a prominent white evangelical intellectual, right? Mm -hmm. For mm -hmm. many decades now. So that is his positioning. Um, I came up as a, um, as a historian of, uh, you know, with training in, in cultural studies and race and gender. And I was always kind of on the edges of evangelicalism, kind of one foot in, one foot out. And so when I um, when I started my project on and you're trying to figure this out, I, I right away like went to the importance of popular culture because I just saw it all around me. Right. I knew how formative it was. I knew that these books were selling. You know, Eldridge's book sold four million copies. Um, and everybody was reading it. And I, you know, I knew how many people have focus on the family radio on, um, mm -hmm. day in, day out. And so that's where I wanted to shift. You know, this is what it means to be evangelical. Uh, whereas, um, I think George and others, um, uh, other evangelical scholars of evangelicalism who, you know, if you're a scholar of evangelicalism, that means you're intellectual. Uh, you probably <laughs> went to seminary at some point and you're definitely, right. you know, your friends did and your friends are, you know, the, you know, editor in chief of, of, um, of Christianity today, or they're, you know, in positions that we in college. So that's your evangelicalism then. And, you know, all of this fits under the, the bigger umbrella of evangelicalism. But when you're trying to characterize kind of what is evan American evangelicalism writ large, I think they would go more towards the more respectable intellectual centers. And I went more to the popular and even uh, populist. Uh, and I and then I argue that actually, I think the center is shifting or maybe the center was always over here. So I think that's one of the key differences uh, between our work. You know, somebody like John Eldridge, I don't think George Marsden had ever heard of. Mm. Uh, I could talk about that. Uh, you know, I don't think he frequented Christian bookstores. That wasn't his thing, right? Uh, but for many evangelicals, especially evangelical women, if you want to throw gender into the mix, you know, that's getting pretty close to the heart of their faith. To understand the faith of evangelical women, you know, walk through a Christian bookstore. Back when we had them, I used to do that regularly for <laughs> research purposes. Yes. Uh, or, you know, walk through the aisles of a Hobby Lobby store. Ooh. And you're going to learn a lot about the values of white evangelicalism. So it's really a kind of um, different emphasis on, um, you know, the intellectual theological logical tradition versus the cultural expression. I love that. That is, that's powerful. I'm, I'm so glad I asked. I, I, cause I, yeah, I, and I haven't met brother Marsden. I I've seen him in far places like AAR and in, in other conferences and whatnot. I think, you know, I went to Fuller. I think he came out to Fuller for a lecture and whatnot. I, I would love to, but I can, I can see listening to you and, and hearing that. I love that. I can see the nuance in, in with that. And so, uh, I, I love that. That's, that's awesome. I'm glad I asked my nerdy question. Um, <laughs> Let me finish up on this one quote that I got to put out there. And, and then I know I know time is nine and I know you got to run because you're doing these these intensive things. I, I used to. I haven't done them in a while, but I whoo, I, I, I hear you, especially the grad. I don't know if you're doing graduate level, or undergraduate. 
No, undergrad, undergrad. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, when I was doing, I was doing a master's level course. It was you know literally four hours a day, and then conversations and thesis. Approval. I'm like, oh lord. So I, I understand. Um, but I love this quote. I think it's on page two seventy two again. I'm reading from a Kindle, and you said, um, this is in chapter sixteen. You know, since the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, evangelicals had championed discipline and authority. Oh my gosh, there's there's so much just in that sentence alone. To obey God was to obey patriarchal authorities when a rigid chain of command and God had equipped men to exercise his authority in the home and in society at large. Come on. Testosterone, testosterone had uh, made men dangerous, but it also made them heroes within their own churches and organizations. Evangelicals had elevated and revered men who exhibited the same traits of rugged and even ruthless leadership. Oh, come on now, doc. Ruthless leadership that President Trump now paraded on the national stage. Oh, I just got to say that one right there spoke to me because it was around 2016 that I was putting this talk together. And in that paragraph, you captured my entire hour talk about just trying to put together these elements of what made Trump so attractive to white evangelicals. People were still trying to like, I can't believe it. What's going on? So that quote right there. That's powerful. That's powerful, Doc. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, every, every once in a while, they, things just kind of came together, and I, I, I knew I had the words uh, to uh, to capture what was going on. You know, it, it, was a, it was a long writing process. It was sometimes grueling, and then mm-hmm. sometimes the words just came. No, absolutely. I was I was working on a book right when the, the 2016 election came, and I was about 160 pages in. And I literally scrapped all those pages because I was like, I can't write this. This is crap. So I literally redid the entire thing based off of. So I hear you on that. And that's why I just I appreciate uh, what's coming out here. Um, let me ask this. Where, where can folks find you? Where, can, where, where are you at these days? I mean, I know obviously you're, you're teaching and doing that. Uh, where can folks follow you if you, if you if you do that on social media these days? Oh yes, I'm I'm very um, present on social media far too much. Uh, so <laughs> I am I'm on Twitter at KK Dumez. That's K K D U M E Z, like Dumez. And I am on Facebook also at KK Dumez. I have a Facebook author page, and uh, I also have a website, KristenDumez.com, uh, where I try to post a lot of my writings. Um, but yeah, yeah, follow me all those spaces. Excellent. Anything new you're working on, or is it just right now? This this book, and you just getting it out there and working it. You know, I just signed another book with the same editor publisher. So really excited about that. And that book is called Live, Laugh, Love. And it is a study of white Christian femininity as it connects to neoliberalism, post-feminism and white supremacy. Lord have mercy on our souls. Dr. Dumay, you are killing it over there. God dang. Okay. All right, because I have so much on that, and oh my gosh, I'm okay. We're gonna have to get you back on this show because that one's gonna be. If this one's fire and lightening up everything, that one right there, live, love, and laugh. I just heard a joke on Rick and Morty about that, and that that was, <laughs> oh man, whoo, wow, that's amazing. And for those of you listening, as always, I'll put all these links in the show notes. And I'm telling you, you have to go out and read this book this book is i'm telling you is the shit so y'all have got to go back and read it the book of course is jesus and john wayne uh how white evangelicals corrupted a faith 
and Fractured a Nation. It's out now. I'll put those links in the show links. Thank you so much, Doc, for taking the time um, and, and speaking. This has been an amazing, eye-opening conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you.